who's your trusted source when it comes to your facility questions, concerns, and needs? Ours is Hard True, the world's largest manufacturer of tennis court surfaces, equipment, and accessories for over 90 years. Partner with their trusted team of experts, along with collegiate greats Jamie Loeb, Alex Rybakov, and Dustin Taylor to bring the service provider of over 30 professional events annually to your facility. Whether it's the red clay of the Houston ATP, the green clay courts of the Charleston WTA, or the official hard court of World Team Tennis, Hard True has you covered. If you're looking to build a court, convert a hard court to clay, or simply resurface your hard court, work together with Hard True in their mission to lead the tennis industry by creating better places to play. To learn more about their state-of-the-art surfaces, along with their catalog customizable on-court accessories, check out hardtrue.com or call 877-442-7878 today. That's hardtrue.com or 877-442-7878 today. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Thursday, June 10th. The women's singles final officially set at the 2021 French Open. It's going to be Barbara Krejcikova taking on Anastasia Pavlichenkova, two first-time single slam finalists. Certainly not the final anyone drew up, but an interesting one nevertheless. And joining me to help break down today's women's semifinal matches, talk about how we got to this final as well as preview what is sure to be an exciting day in the men's semifinals tomorrow. He's our crack rackets do everything, forefather of the forehand slice, a man you know affectionately as James Foster McDonald. Jamie, welcome back to the Mini Break Podcast. How are you feeling today? I feel like these yeah, semifinals fired you I'm not going to lie to you. I'm tense. Uh, so no, it's good. <laughs> we get to hash everything out and just put it on the table because this was Oof, I, I have a lot of feelings, so let's just get right in. I just have a lot of feelings. That's all I can say for now. No, that's good to hear, and I feel like the feelings are spread out between the men's and the women's single, single semifinals and just two drastically yeah. different fields, right? Because in Sakari, Krejcikova, Pavlyshenkova, and Zidanezic, maybe if I had made the case Sakari upsets Sviantec, you'd be like, yeah, maybe, but probably not. But that's like the one name perhaps we all would have believed. Meanwhile, on the men's side, I don't know if you could have scripted Yeah, I mean, look, on the men's side, this was chalk. Um, even if you take the numbers away, this is what yeah. we expected. This is what we talked about on the preview pod. Um, funny, I didn't see Zidancic in the semis in either of our previews. I don't know. Weird. It must have just slipped my mind. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's just two completely different sides here with the men's <laughs> and women's. But, uh, yeah. Now, uh, Sakari, the only one who I could have made a case for legitimately, just like you mentioned. Other ones, no chance. So it's, it's, a weird, it's a weird time. But, again, it reiterates all the things we talk about with how wild majors are in the WTA when you don't have someone like a dominant Serena. No, absolutely. And, you know, it's worth noting, Anastasia Pavlchenkova has been in the WTA Top 50 since 2008, and she was the number one junior in the world when she was 14 years old, two-time junior slam champion. There was a lot always expected of her. At the same time, you know, when you play 50 consecutive Grand Slams and you reach the quarterfinals at each of the majors, but you never advance beyond that stage, there's a reason a run like this becomes shocking because you see all of the new talent that is filtered through. And in particular, I like to break it up into three generations. You have Serena Plus, and obviously there's Serena on her own, but I'll throw Halep in the mix there, Kerber in the mix there, Kvitova in the mix there. The players we know are going to be competing if they play their best tennis. Then you have the next gen, the Osaka, Andrescu, Kenin, Sviantex, Goffs of the world who have been so dominant. And then honestly, I think we have the emergence of you know, the Sakaris of the world. Krejcikova was born in 1995. Conteves and Mertens and Jennifer Brady's, Garbine Muguruza's there in age as well. But you don't think about someone at Anastasia Pavlchenkova, 29 years old, who earns the victory. And you know what? And I'm going to throw a curveball at you, Jamie. Let's start 
with Pavlachenkova. I know we, I said we were going to start with a three-set match. We'll go chronologically instead. Pavlachenkova, a 7-5-6-3 win over Tamara Zidanzik. Now, of course, the big momentum shifts in this match happened at a couple of moments. Zidanzik starts out with a two-love lead, gets the early break up Pavlachenkova, a couple of forehand errors. That's a thought I want to get back to with you momentarily, Jamie. But, you know, then Zidanzik manages to hold. From there, though, Pavlachenkova gets those breaks back immediately. Immediately, and actually goes up 5-3 at the end of this first set. Now Zidanzik able to claw her way back to 5-all, uh, but ultimately it just felt like Zidanzik, it was too difficult for her to hurt Pavlachenkova. And while I would argue the Zidanzik forehand was the most dynamic shot on the court, it was certainly, I think, the heaviest in terms of topspin and her ability to move that ball into the outer thirds in particular, hit it inside out, inside out to open up the inside in. I thought that was the best single pattern on the court. But when Pavlachenkova was able to get a ball into the Zidanzik backhand and attack with her backhand at all, whether it be the return of serve, whether it be with a first strike, she just had the bigger weapons on the court. And ultimately, again, 7-5-6-3 victory for her. She was up 4-1 in the second, I suppose. Zidanzik did break back for 4-3, but then Pavlachenkova steals those last two games. I mean, your thoughts on Pavlachenkova's performance? I thought... I thought she earned this match, but I thought Zidane yeah, I mean, certainly look, it, had chances. There, there were some momentum swings, absolutely. And a nervy start, I think, on the side of Pavlyuchenkova. Um, she got down 2-0 real quick there, and I was like, oh boy, what are we in for? But no, I mean, from the beginning and, and even before the match started, this is the result I expected, you know, just in terms of the caliber of player that she has beaten throughout this. I mean, she took out Azarenka, Rabakina, and Sabalenka back-to-back-to-back. I mean, that's just it's impressive. Like, beating those players back-to-back-to-back in a major is impressive. And so, for me, I I didn't think that was going to be all for nothing. Um, And so, yeah, you mentioned it. Zidancic did have the ability to open things up with that forehand. But I think probably a chink of it was able to expose the backhand so easily, especially off the return of serve. I mean, you look the whole time Zidancic was throwing in, what, on average, 77 mile an hour um, second serves and it's not like they were huge kickers or anything so that's why Pavlyuchenkova was able to win over 50% of the receiving points and and from there you can just do a ton you're never out of a match because you're always getting chances to break even if you get broken yourself so from that standpoint it just doesn't come out that surprising regardless of the end score she was always going to have chances to strike and get breaks back and, and, and gain leads that way the serving numbers aren't pretty for Zidancic. She made 75% for first serves, which you think, okay, that's a good number, but a mm-hmm. lot of them were rolled to the Pavlachenkova forehand. And I stick by my theory, and I mentioned this on two days ago's podcast, had Rabakina targeted the Pavlachenkova forehand, just played park the bus to that side, I do think that side breaks down when you attack it with depth, with pace. And when Zidancic was able to attack with her inside-out, inside-out, inside-in pattern or get her return of serve deep down the center of the court at the Pavlachenkova forehand wing, she would either A, draw errors, or B, draw a short ball that she could attack and, you know, keep the momentum of the rally on her side, be the one that was dictating. But, I mean, you're absolutely right that three-quarters of the points were started on Pavlachenkova's serve and that she controlled two-thirds of her service points. She made two-thirds of her first serves. And then, you know, again, Stancic won 53% of her first serve points, 38% of her second serve points, as you mentioned, won fewer than 50% of her service points overall. It To say it was feeding an approach shot to Pavlachenkova would be hyperbole, but Pavlachenkova was automatically in control of rallies. And you know you have time and comfort as a returner when you're taking an inside-in backhand on the deuce side, hitting that ball down the line, and ripping it for a winner. And that's what Pavlachenkova was doing against Zidanzik. At the same time, it did feel like if those rallies got extended, Zidanzik would have chances. And you look for her overall 27 winners against 33 unforced errors. I do think she was able to do some dictating with that forehand, get Pavlachenkova moving side to side. But I think to your point in the end, you're right. Things were just too easy in the Zidanzik service game. And the fact that she goes 6 of 10 on breakpoint chances. Right. And, and that's what that. that's just what's so difficult, right? Zidanzik, as you mentioned at the top of this, she was able to put herself in positions to strike. She was. The problem is when she's doing that, even if it's on return games, she has no confidence and no ability to be able to hold routinely. Um, and so that's really, in the end, you know, there was not, not one specific thing that I felt like she could rely on to make Pavlyuchenkova uncomfortable 
shot after shot, game after game. And Pavlyuchinkova, look, I mean, the, this is kind of a given when you beat the caliber of players that she has throughout this tournament, but she just finds ways to win, and she adapts really, really well. And, and so I think at this point, Zidancic, even if she did pick up a couple patterns, wasn't able to just keep that variety up and keep the discomfort, I guess, on the other side of the court because Pavlyuchinkova was able to come up with something that was really, really good. I mean, and it's as simple as that. Zidancic wasn't able to make her uncomfortable and pressured enough game after game to be able to get it done or even force a third set. No, Zidancic was certainly good when she had some cracks at second serve returns and was able to play first forehands. And in the five-plus shot rally, she played Pavlochenkova even. She won, you know, 39 of them, Pavlochenkova 41. The difference was Pavlochenkova had a first serve that afforded her more plus-one chances, and that was the difference in the match. Pavlochenkova plus-nine in that category, the zero-to-four shot rallies. Um, no, it, it's, I agree with you when you say Pavlochenkova is adaptable as well. She'll hit the swinging volley out of the air to take time away from you she'll absorb your pace go down the line off of both wings if you give her time to get into her big backswing on the forehand she can absolutely rip that ball and she had an on the run cross-court passing shot forehand to earn one of the breaks or in one of the games that she earned the break of Zidanezic that was one of those special shots she's clearly comfortable moving on this surface now what's so crazy you look for Pavlochenkova in her career just you know overall Jamie uh, you know, she's won 58% of her career tour-level matches, 59% on hard courts, 59% on clay as well. Her numbers stay uh, pretty similar. She actually, one of the few players who becomes a better server on clay, she wins about, uh, it, about it's, let's see, uh, points. 0.6 more percent of her service points, but she actually loses 0.6 more of her uh, return points. So she's the same player across surfaces. Is this, a, again, you talked about the wins. Tom, Mikhail, Tomjanovic, Sabalenka, Azarenka, Rabakina in three sets, then the win here over Zidanezic. What will we think about this run if Pavlochenkova ends up in the winner's Um I, I think, at least for me as a viewer of this, I will feel somewhat validated because I can at least look at the this and say yes this makes sense I understand how she gets here I understand the performance you know she's had one they were showing a stat on tennis channel today of like the number of top 10 wins that she has compared to anyone else who has been similar in her rankings over the last five or so years and so it makes sense when you get to it from that regard and, and the level of tennis that she's played has been very impressive but I mean, it's still going to feel weird, regardless of who ends up in the winner's circle. Like you said, it's going to feel weird, right? Like, it, it's going to be a name where you're like, well, we didn't see that coming. And so even if you try and hindsight it and, and make some sort of, you know, logical deduction of why this happened, sure, you can you can make some sense of it. But at the end of the day, nobody expected it for uh, so many different reasons. But at this point, I would say out of the people remaining, which now we're down to the, the final two, she deserves it more, given the level that she's displayed and given the caliber of player she's beaten. But that's just my two cents at this point. 36 top 10 wins in her career. Now, 36 sure. and 69 overall. But that, to your point, she's put herself in a position to play those players time after time. And she's lost two-thirds of the matches. But most people lose at least two-thirds of their matches to top 10 opponents. I agree. She's been in the mix for so long this is just playing your cards right. You catch a Serena towards the end of her run. You catch these young ascending stars still, try, still trying to figure out how to bring it slam in, slam out. And again, you look for her overall. I mean, she's been good, not great. 18 and 13 in her last 52 weeks. She did make the semifinal run to Madrid, but that's a quicker surface certainly uh, in terms of qualities of clay. But wins over Pliskova, Brady, Mukova before getting knocked out by Sabalenka. You look for her. Last year, she made second round Roland Garros. I mean, yes, it's unexpected. There's no denying that. At the same time, she has certainly earned her spot in this final. Quick final thoughts on Zedantic. Your takeaways from this event for her. You look now in the live rankings for Zedantic, up to a new career high of number 47, the 23-year-old from Sylvania. Clearly a career run here. She made a final at the WTA level earlier in the clay court season as well. She a perennial top 50 player? Is this right run, right time? What do you expect to see from her I mean, again, I think you throw her in with a huge cast of just really talented young players at the moment, and it's going to be up to her to navigate and and how she gets to the top of that crew. I mean, I will say that the most promising thing for me out of any of this is completely, you know, outside of the tennis 
is just how she was able to compete and beat good players, right? Um, I, I know, I, I think I circulated something on, on Twitter about this, but coming back from sets down, uh, completely resetting matches. She dropped that opening set to Sinyakova 6-0, came back and reset completely. Beat Bedosa, somebody who has been very solid on clay, somebody we've talked probably too much about, 8-6 in the third. I mean, so the ability for her to go out there and compete and find ways to dig is really, really important. And I think for me, that's going to be the big thing that allows her to be that sort of perennial top player that we know because i mean right now i mean look honestly the market is saturated with this age group of talented players it just is and so it's like what is going to be the difference at the end of the day it's probably not the strokes right it's it's between the ears and how you're going to get matches done and so i think uh, you know a run like this getting to the semis and, and getting knocked out um in a real tight five and three i think this goes a long way Absolutely. The confidence she clearly gained from overcoming that 5-4 deficit in the first round, third set, two end rescue. Uh-huh. She rode that confidence the rest of the way. And ultimately, she just didn't have quite enough to make things easier for herself against Pavlachinkova. And again, does that define her ceiling? Maybe, moving forward, but she's going to win a lot of matches, match in, match out, just with the way she competes. I put her in the Pharaoh category, you know, the Fiona Pharaoh, right? Where it's just, she's very athletic, moves very fluidly around the court. You feel like that's going to translate to hard courts. Now, can she generate enough pace on her own? Forehand wing, yes. Backhand wing, to be determined. That serve... It's interesting as well. Uh, you know, again, Podoroska has stuck around in the top 50. I don't think there's no reason yeah. to dance No, I agree also. with you there. And, and like you said, I mean, at this point, she's 23. Again, I throw her into a crop of, <laughs> of, of players in the WTA that we will talk a ton about. Um, and, yeah, she's going to be someone who you don't want to run into in a draw, but you mentioned it, that ceiling. It might be there given what we've seen in, in terms of her weapons and how she can truly win points at the end of the day. But, again, for me, it's, it, it's, it's all positive here in how she competed and was able to you know, wiggle her way out of some really bad positions in these matches. Well, there's no denying that. But speaking of wiggling your way out of bad positions, that is a perfect time to transition to our second semifinal of the day. And, you know, again, we had someone fight off a match point to advance to their first Grand Slam singles final in Barbara Krejcikova, who overcomes a match point down, I believe, 5-3 in the third set, serving down 30-40, then breaks Sakari at 4-5 and ultimately takes the third set in a 7-5, 4-6, 9-7 victory. Now, Jamie, the moment we started, or the moment we connected the phone call to begin this podcast, you were already talking about this match. I'll just let you take it in any direction. Oh, man. there's so many directions to go here i mean like let's start let's start with this sentiment um yeah it's a heartbreaker right because sakari i mean again this is sort of validating the what we would expect and again this is the one person in the semis who we could like you said at least sort of logically go oh yeah i see how that happens um and just you look at the tennis you look at the strokes you look at what she's been able to do how she plays her game and you're like yes she should win this match you saw her win over Shiantek someone who's been so dominant here the last couple of years. Yes, she deserves to be at this stage. And then you get through this match, the first set, shaky. She comes back in the second set. It's a little dicey. There's some roller coaster between the breaks and the holes. Okay, fine. You get to the third set. You think you're in a good position. You think she's going to win this. She has the match point. And things just... They hurt. I don't know how else to say it. It's just disappointing at this point. And yes, I did think she was going to win. Yes, I may or may not have had some money on this. But it still just hurts without that part because you look at the strokes. And again, you look at the talent that is soccer. And no, this doesn't diminish things. And yes, I think she'll be back on this stage plenty of times. But God, you feel like this is just such an opportunity to get to your first Grand Slam final. There's no denying that, and again, she had match point in this match, and she also then subsequently served for the match at 5-4, but, you know, Krechikova does such a good job of absorbing and redirecting pace, and that forehand backswing is big, and it's very loopy, nice big circle at the back of that backswing, but her ability to hit through that ball and generate pace and take that ball early and go cross-court, her ability to swing through the backhand, down the line, cross-court, her ability to neutralize any first serve, and you see the double skills. She just gets that ball deep in the court and puts the point back at neutral. 
It was really, really hard for Sakari to hurt her. Now, let's also be clear. Sakari played a peak match against Sviantec. Her, her ability to hit through Iga was beyond impressive. And it's really hard to duplicate that sort of performance twice. And if you do, you usually end up in the winner's circle of one of these grand slams. But there's no denying for Sakari, and she talked about it openly in the press conference, she felt the nerves of the moment. And there were times early in the match, it just felt like she was trying to swing through everything. And, you know, again, she I think she goes down an early break in that first set and is able to get it back pretty quickly. But just felt like she was forcing things that... She couldn't really hit through Krechakova easily. There was no discernible weakness, and so she's kind of pressing and trying to move forward, and you look for her again, 27 winners against 53 unforced errors. That speaks to, A, both, you know, for Krechakova, by the way, 31 winners against 58 unforced errors. Both these players at a certain point in the rally were just like, I need to try and go for a winner now. Uh, but this match was... I thought incredibly physical. That was my first takeaway from this, Jamie. It's just like, it was really hard for both of these players to hit through one another, and I think that speaks to the nerves yeah, of the Yeah, so I, I, I'll agree with you and say that it was physical, um, you know, but I think it's also fair for us not to sugarcoat this and say that this, you know, in general, looking at the tennis played on this court for this match was generally just not clean. It, you know, I, I just don't think it was that good of a match, to be honest with you. Um, and yeah, you mentioned it, Sakari, obviously at a higher level against Sviantec, and that's how she got to this point. Um, but just really disappointing to see how many times she could set up points and just completely blow a sitting ramp. Um, and yeah, credit to Krejcikova for throwing up the moon balls and staying in rallies. You know, we love to see that just generally. And, and anybody who can go out there and push and hack is, <laughs> is great. But I think, you know, you look at this match and you're like, holy crap, I, I can win matches this way. I mean, it was insane, and Sakari could not figure it out, and so that was the disappointing part for me, is she just could not figure out how to win points, and you could see it. You mentioned the nerves that she talked about openly. I mean, it was so evident. She would try to come to the net with no confidence, no real purpose in mind. Uh, you know, to me, yes, she shouldn't have been just trying to slap every ball, but her game is that big hitting from the ground, and so, hey, how about we keep the swing speed up but just go to a bigger target instead of just crumbling and just trying to push in these rounds. It was just tactically, I didn't see good adjustments from Sakari. Um, and, and so to me, this was much more Sakari imploding and not being able to win a match than it was Krejcikova, besides her scrambling and throwing up moon balls, which again, credit where credit's due for doing that and, and realizing that you can get a win and get to the finals of Roland Garros doing that. I mean, I think that's a, a little ridiculous in and of itself, but I mean, look, here we are, um, and she played in the moment. She knew that Sakari was very nervy, wasn't able to hit through her all the way and finish points, and she took advantage of that. Well, I thought she did a really, really good job of playing plus one tennis in that third set and keeping her service game simple. And you look for her stats why she made 65% of her first serves won, 71% of her first serve points, 73% of her second serve points in that third set. She also had the gumption to hit through the ball and go for those big shots and move forward and be at the end. She was 6 of 9 at the net, but I think Sakari missed a bunch of passing shots that, you know, technically don't now count as net points for Krechikova. And again, I think it's her ability to do it off both wings. She is really skilled in that, you know, again, if you give her time on the forehand, she can hit through that ball. I actually think she absorbs and redirects pace really well, particularly on these clay courts. I feel like the harder Sakari tried to hit the ball, the bigger the ball was come back at her and then as you mentioned she did flash the defensive skills the ability to just push Sakari 12 feet behind the baseline say let's play moon ball tennis and you're going to leave one short before I do and I'm going to have a chance to either hit a swinging volley or hit an approach shot and get to the net and she had the confidence to execute and I know that unforced error count is large but that's because she was at least trying to stay on her front foot and that's been the theme for Krejcikova all tournament long, whether, you know, it was the win over Alexandrova in round two, Svitolina round three, Stevens, Goff, or now here, Sakari, she kept swinging through it all, and there is a poise to her that is sort of like, look, I've at least competed in the last stages of uh, the later stages in the final stages of a Grand Slam event. And of course, for those of you who don't know, Barbara Krejcikova was the number one doubles player in the world as far back as 2018, a two-time women's doubles champion, three-time mixed doubles champion. 
She does have a poise to her. Even when we can talk about it now in the 7-8 service game, match point 30-40, big ball from backhand, uh, a backhand from Sakari. Was it long? Was it not? Tough to tell via a television. But the chair umpire comes out and overrules the call and says the ball was in, replay the point, and Sakari ends up taking it and ends up getting two game point. And Krejcikova shakes it off, and she ends up breaking that game. And I think that's kind of emblematic of just the poise she has displayed all time no, I, long. I think you're right there. Um, when you get down to the mental part, I mean, Sakari was just praying that she didn't blow this match, and Krejcikova found a way to scrap until she got her opportunities. I, I think that's that's the best way I can put it. And so mentally, you got to feel like Krejcikova's just simply put herself, and she just put herself in a much better spot, whereas Sakari was, you could tell she was thinking, oh my God, I should win this match. Oh my God, how have I not won this match? How can I not win these points? Um, and, and, and I mean, there was just a desperation that you saw every time she missed a ball by, you know, two three inches she looked up at her box and was just for what like and, and so there was a bit of helplessness out there that i didn't love and, and again i think that speaks to her i guess inability in this match to just figure things out and figure out a way to win and, and so again i think that's a little bit disappointing but yeah that's that's probably where some experience on this sort of stage from krejcikova comes into play she's won these big titles sure you know it's on the double side but still being able to, to hoist a trophy and win at this level at a grand at a grand slam on these courts you know, it, it, it means something. And so, again, I think mentally her ability to get out of bad situations was good. But, no, when it comes down to the tennis, I mean, look, both of these players essentially hit double the amount of unforced errors as winners. So I, I can't sit here and say that this was a really clean and good match because it wasn't. But, yeah, Krejcikova dug her way out of a bad situation, took advantage of the fact that Sakari just completely crumbled in the big moments. And here we are. She's found herself in the finals. No, and we talked about for Pavlochenkova 18 and 13 in her last 52, but at least had hovered around this quarterfinal stage of a Grand Slam at each of the Grand Slams before in her career. What's so interesting about Krejcikova is she is someone clearly on the rise, but it's still very early in her single slam career. She's 42 and 16 in her last 52, Jamie. That's a 72% win percentage. That is a player who's starting to play their best tennis, and at 25 years old, it makes sense. And, you know, for her, it was the final in Dubai where, you know, she took advantage of a good draw. She beat Sakari there, Ostapenko, Kuznetsova, Teichman in the semifinal before getting knocked out by Muguruza. She then wins Strasbourg the week before this event and now is on an 11-match win streak. And you can't deny that. You look in her career, she's won 57% of her tour-level singles matches, 64% of the matches she's played on clay. All of her service numbers get better. Her return numbers get better. What's so interesting, again, is if you look for her in her career in tour-level matches, uh, or in, excuse me, in Grand Slam matches, she still hasn't played that many main draws, Jamie. In fact, do you want to take a guess how many Grand Slam singles oh, main draws like Krejcikova's played? I thought it was like three. Sure. That's that's what you're going with? Three's the guess? Yeah, okay. I knew, I knew, it, was five. I knew it was low. So you're not yeah. far off. Yeah, no, and that's a Price is Right rules you win. That's definitely closer than most people would expect. And it's like her first main draw was 2018 Roland Garros. Her second main draw was 2020 Australian Open where she came through qualifying. Then she played, you know, last year's French Open round of 16, this year's Australian Open, now this year's French Open. She's only not had to play qualifying in three ma- in three majors. So your three number does work for a different stat. And it's like... The success she's already had is a testament to get your confidence in doubles, play those singles event, the game yeah, can click. I mean, again, that's, this is where it, this is where it just simply helps you to have success, right? That experience, that success, whether it's doubles, singles, whatever, it, it helps, generally speaking. And so, yeah, I mean, again, she's riding a high right now. She's playing well. She's doing what she needs to, and I think she's honestly found herself a bit of a comfort zone in realizing that, hey. If she gets in trouble, she can just throw up a moon ball, and a lot of players, especially when, when nerves are in play, aren't going to be able to hit through her. They don't know what to do. Um, and so, again, we'll, we'll get to sort of how the preview of this looks for the final, probably on tomorrow's mini break, so we, we can save that longer conversation. But it's going to be really interesting because I, I do think she'll be able to get some free points not only in this final match but for the rest of her career because she knows that what she can do is just scramble and, and throw up a sky lob and, you know, 
it's it's clear that people in the WTA aren't going to be able to hit through her like that all the time. Um, now, if you get somebody who can effectively combat that, get her off the baseline, get her uncomfortable, come into net, finish off points, you know, maybe that story looks a little different. But, I mean, after today, it's it's you understand you understand why she's been able to pull out matches. She gets she does not bail out of rallies very often. She plays smart. She knows her strength. I mean, that's the big thing right now. She knows her game so well, and there's absolutely no shame in the moon ball return, which, I mean, hey, again, credit where credit's due. Good for you. Yeah. No, it's interesting because last year, Sviantek versus Kennan felt so out of nowhere. And I actually do think there is an element. Look, for Pavlochenkova, we mentioned she beat Mikhail Tomjanovic. That's a good win. Sabalenka, great win. At Vika, great win. Rybakina, great win. Zidanezic, you take advantage of the draw you have, but that's a great win given to Danzig's level. Um, I think that's a spot earned in the final. You beat the three seed, 15 seed, 21 seed. Like That's a different run than we saw last year. And you look for uh, the Krechikova side you know, to beat four seeds, Alexandrova, Svitolina, Goff, Sakri, to beat Stevens and Christina Pliskova as well. There's just it, these feel real. Like it, it, this doesn't feel wrong. It does feel like we have the two best players, like the ones who were most consistent match in, match out, upset after upset, regardless of who was. I mean, the again, net. that's 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 what you can say when you see the results of the wins they've picked up. So I understand it from that sense. But uh, I mean, again, I think this just speaks to the fact that there's nobody in the women's game right now who can just come out and actually win matches. And, and so that's to me, that's the biggest reason why we come out here and see just. I mean, a completely rotating cast. Nobody can defend their titles. We're always having new finalists. And like, yeah, at a certain point, oh, there's so much talent, sure. But it's also like, how can nobody sustain a certain level? Even the people who are perennial top 10 or have been top 10 for the last two, three years now can't come in here and and defend this and really block off these runs from... Look, there's a lot of factors here, and we don't need to get into it all of it now. But I mean, for me, if we're getting back to the Kochikova side, to me, her most impressive win here was probably the quarters against Goff because Goff was on fire. She was up in that first set, arguably should have won it. Sakari today, Sakari, excuse me, had the match and kind of gave it away to Krejcikova. Yeah, there's credit there, but a lot of that is on the Sakari racket. Sloane Stevens, all due respect, had no business being in the fourth round of Roland Garros. Like, Svitolina crumbled under pressure because she was a favorite to win. I mean, like, there's a lot of different ways that, unfortunately, I can explain those wins, but to me, the Goff win is, is very good, and now... Again, I think she understands her game, and she can clearly compete really well. It's going to be interesting. I don't think – I mean, I don't think that she'll win this. I think Pavlia Chikova has been the better player. She's had the better wins. But, I mean, look, Krejcikova's proved me wrong more than once. So, you know, <laughs> what, what does it mean for her to do it again? Yeah, I mean, her only losses this clay court season were to Sviantek in three, Bedosa, as you mentioned – and Anna Bogdan in Istanbul. And we can throw that one out the window because that's the first clay event of the year. Um, I just I would push back and say Osaka won the U.S. Open and the Australian Open back-to-back hardcourt events. I mean, she can do it. Like, these players okay, do that's, exist. Right, that's, right, Where that's, I would that's disagree one, with you. And she withdrew from the tournament. Well, she right, withdrew from I, the tournament and everyone was okay, picking Ashley her to get Barty, by in, like, what, the third round? That's fine, but then you go to the other obvious ones. Ashley Barty withdraws due to injury, which that happens. Like, you, you can't script an injury, but I think, you know, she wins Miami. She wins a couple of warm-up events. She looked awesome in the build-up to this 2021 French Open. And if healthy, I mean, she was in the discussion with Sviantek and Sabalenka right up there. Uh, now, of course, for Sabalenka, the struggles continue at the majors. She wins everywhere else. Like and you talk about Goff, I agree. Goff is red hot. Goff, for her, it was first quarterfinal experience. She's seventeen years old. Like, let's give her time. But she's been a top ten player this season. Elo ratings suggest that. I think she's been fairly consistent. To see her in the quarterfinals wasn't a surprise. I just think it's the it's the margins. It's that there's not a someone who is, you know light years ahead better like it it speaks to the parody at the top that there are so many good players you're right there's not a single dominant player but there are a lot of really good ones who keep show like Sakari in a semifinal isn't that shocking if you've been watching week in week out over the past sure again and that's why we justified her being there but how how can you explain just the top 10 seeds just crumbling draw after draw after draw like it's at a certain point it can't only be about oh my goodness there's so many talented players who are unseated right and like you go back to the ash party sure she's been able to consistently do some things but like 
Also, she shows up on her home slam and just completely crumbles under pressure against Mukova in the quarters of the like. So again, you just see it happen over and over. And yeah, again, this is compared to or contrasted rather to the men's side where we've seen people be dominant in a way that no other people have been before. And and so I get that. And I'm not saying it needs to look like that, nor does it need to look like you know the 2014, 2015 Serena. Like I'm not comparing it there, but it does seem a little crazy that. The semis is just a complete crapshoot of four people and one that we can justify being there. I don't know. I mean, for, first time in the open air, you have four first-time yeah. semifinalists. There's no denying that there's craziness to that. At the same time, it speaks to the generational shift. This is the moment where it is open. And, like, I would say enjoy it while we can because three years from now when – one of Osaka, Andrescu, Kennen, Shriantek is going to emerge as the dominant force. They all have that sort of upside. It's just figuring it out on the pathway there. Like Then it's no fun, Like in my opinion. like Of course you want to see the greats continue to thrive and try and break records. At the same time, don't isn't this jockeying for position? Like We haven't had this in tennis in so long. I think this is something we all should enjoy. Like, I don't think the quality of the tennis I, I would say that the quality of tennis I mean I mean truthfully do you think that the quality of tennis in the semi was really that good because I would argue that no I think there were moments where it was very great I think there were absolutely moments where they were both tight but I don't I don't think the pressure of the moment was lost in the match like it did feel like a semifinal particularly down the home stretch of that third set now it felt like a first yeah. time semifinal but Again, still but the, a semifinal I mean, this is where we had a similar conversation when we saw team and Zverev playing in the US Open final and we're like is this a joke like is this really the final of a US Open and so again I, I had a very similar feeling in that and again I think that it's better for the sport when there are people who reassert themselves at the top and it's people challenging those players a lot and, you know, beating those players when it's something significant. But I mean, in this case, it just, I don't know, it doesn't really feel that way. And, you know, I, look, I don't know how many people will feel differently than me if they'll see this as a great Roland Garros and, and a heck of a win and a way to close things out for either Pavlyuchinkova or Krejcikova, whoever ends up winning it in the final. But at the end of the day, I, I think at this point, I'm just a little bit disappointed, and, and that's that's just how it is. No, it's, I can't fault anything you're saying. I guess my difference is we'll see how the final plays out, because these are two very evenly matched players. And again, we'll talk about it more tomorrow, and we'll get you back on tomorrow's pod. This is me asking you in live time. Um, but... Yeah, it, 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 we'll see. I, again, it, it it should be a really... Uh, hopefully, they both play yeah. their best tennis because, again, it's very evenly matched. There's no distinguishable advantage. Yeah, I, mean, I would, look, say, I, I would say that right now I give Pavlyuchinkova a bit of an edge um, just in terms of the tennis. But, uh, again, so much of our conversation has been how people have been able to scrap out of matches, or at least from my side. And Krejcikova has certainly shown that in abundance. And so, yeah, it's, it's really hard to try to bet against either of these players because, man, they have both come out of really, really tight situations and tight matches and, and found ways to get it done. So I expect, I mean, I expect that there will be some very nervy-looking points uh, and games, and that's inevitable, right? It, it's a first-time slam for both of these, slam final for both of these players, so I, I don't fault either of them there. I mean, it's a huge stage, and it's going to be something completely brand new. Uh, but like you said, I do hope that the level of tennis really rises to, to I don't know, what it should be because... If it's at the level of what I saw in the semis, particularly the second one, I'll be a little bit disappointed in, in, in how that plays out. But regardless, whoever wins this has gotten through quality players and deserves a spot. It's just, I don't know, yeah, yeah. meh is my final thought on that one. But again, <laughs> I'll, hopefully I'll be able to come on tomorrow and expand upon meh before we truly preview the match. Yeah, we can. Uh, yes, I can guarantee you that ability. But with that in mind, let's talk about tomorrow's men's semifinals. And, you know, again, complete opposite story. If there's any doubt about the women's final field, there is no doubt we have the four best men. And just some numbers to clarify on that stat. You look at tennis abstract ELO ratings Djokovic, one, Nadal, two, Tsitsipas, four, Zverev, six. You look at tennis abstracts, clay court specific ELO ratings Nadal, one, Tsitsipas, Pass two, Zverev three, Djokovic four. You look at twenty twenty one specific Elo ratings. Nadal one, Cici Pass two, Djokovic three, Zverev four. You look at ATP Tennis Abstract leaderboard. Who are the players who are top fifteen in both hold percentage and break percentage for the twenty twenty one season? Four of the six players are Nadal, Cici Pass, Djokovic, and Zverev. 
we have the four best players in the world. Let's just be frank about it. And when you talk about Djokovic and Nadal, let's be honest, those are probably the two best players in the world, particularly when you talk about the best of five Grand Slam format. And you look for these two, there's no secrets. It's battle number 58. Djokovic, a 29-28 to head-to-head lead at this point. Now you look, clay court-specific matches. Djokovic, uh, or I should say Nadal, leads 19-7 and overall. Djokovic has only beaten him once. At Roland Garros, it was in 2015, and he hasn't beaten him on clay since the 2016 season. That was all the way back in Rome. You look at their pathways to this point of the event. Nadal has dropped just the one set. It came against Diego Schwartzman in his quarterfinal. Other than that, it's wins over Popperin, Gasquet, Nori, and Sinner uh, for Novak Djokovic. Things have gotten a little testier of late, but wins over Sandgren, Cuevas, Barankis, comes back from the two sets to love deficit and beats Musetti yesterday. Probably should have won in straight sets, but ends up winning in four over Berrettini. Not broken once in that match, it's worth noting. Nadal, you look overall, last 52 weeks, pretty successful year for him, 37-7 and seven for Djokovic, 48-8. and eight. Obviously, for Novak, he's got an Australian Open title for Nadal. He's got a French Open title under his belt. Jamie, I've got other numbers to run for the listeners, but I'll let you take it from here. Your thoughts on where these players enter in this match, your yeah, thoughts I mean, on what we should all, be look, watching. You, you said it from the top. This is These are the four best players. These are the four people who deserve to be here. And, you know, some of them have gotten out of some compromising positions. Zverev was in a really weird spot in this first-round match, but since then has looked lights out. Um, Sitsipas with a really impressive win over Medvedev. Um, I mean, that, the way he got through that match, I did not expect it to look exactly like that. And no, Medvedev, maybe not at his best, at his most comfortable, but still impressive nonetheless coming out of that young bottom side. And look, on the top, the two greats, they did what everyone expected them to do, right? And so now it's it's the you know 10,000th clash between Djokovic and Nadal. And here we are, right? I think at this point in terms, one thing I think we've both learned about, you know, looking and trying to be too... I don't know, looking with too careful of an eye on the like road to the semis or the finals for someone like Djokovic and Nadal is these guys bring it at this stage. I mean, how many times have we seen these people bounce back from insane five set matches and win tournaments? I mean, it's ridiculous. And so for these two, to me, it doesn't really mean as much with their path because they were just getting through those matches to set up with the battle with one another. Um, So I try not to look at it too much. Djokovic clearly wants it. I mean, you saw that ridiculous reaction after the Berrettini win. I think even Matteo was like, dude, I, I, get me out of here. Like, I can't be within, like, a 100-yard radius of this guy. He is, you know, he is nuclear at the moment. So um, that, that was just weird, by the way. We need to talk about it, but that was bizarre. Uh, anyway, at this point, it's the, the tournament is set with how it should be. Nadal and Djokovic, Tsitsipas and Zverev. You said it. We have the best four players. Nadal is going, and I will say this too, I'm a little surprised at how heavy um, the favorites are, the way they're set up on the betting odds. Nadal, a bit more of a favorite than I expected, and Tsitsipas, definitely more um, of a favorite than I expected, but with both of these, you know they're going to bring it in, and maybe, you know, yes, I would say there are favorites, and that's legitimate, but they're closer to toss-ups in my mind than I think other people have been talking about them. I don't know. Look, we'll start with the Nadal-Djokovic. The big thing is Nadal is the same player regardless of if he's playing Djokovic or anyone else on clay. Djokovic's performance significantly drops off when he plays Nadal on clay. And you just look at the numbers in his career versus Nadal versus versus clay, or on clay versus Nadal. His first serve percentage drops by 4.8%. His second serve percentage drops by 4.7%. His hold percentage drops by 9.7%. His service point ones drops by 4.7%. His break percentage drops from 25.6 in general against Nadal, which by the way is 7% lower than his career average, to 24.4 on clay. That's obviously 1.2 lower than normal. And he goes from winning 50.7% of the points in general to 48%. 
Nadal has just cracked the code. He prevents Djokovic from playing plus one tennis. He keeps Djokovic on his back foot. And on other surfaces, Djokovic is good enough on his back foot to beat Nadal, but not on clay. That plus one forehand for Nadal, just as effective on clay versus Djokovic as it is against and on that surface as anywhere else. And you look at his numbers, everything for the serve holds steady or increases, and his break percentage improves by 10% against Djokovic when they play on clay. The big thing for Novak, and it's worth saying, he served really well in this tournament thus far. In particular, I thought he played really efficient plus one tennis against both Berrettini and Musetti, to be honest. He's played three really bad tiebreakers, and I do think that's critical. The two approach shots he missed 5-4 in that third set breaker yesterday, I feel like that's going to stick in his mind, and that's a good thing because it keeps you motivated. Not that you needed extra motivation, but he can't come out of that Berrettini match and say, well, I played my best match. I just have to replicate that against Nadal. It's no, I still have some things. I need to clean up, but I am getting closer to playing my best level. I think he's still got another gear in him, and if you're a Djokovic fan, I think that's a good thing to hear, is that like he still hasn't played his peak match in this slam. Now, he needs to do it against Nadal, but it's worth noting... I think Nadal's serve's been good, not great. And I think he's gotten off to slower starts than Uh normal in these matches. I think just his forehand lacks a little depth early on. It lacks a little pace, and there's going to be opportunities for Djokovic to attack. Now, I think for Djokovic, if he doesn't take... And I know this is, like, so obvious, but if he doesn't take the first two sets, he loses the match. Even if Nadal gets a split, like, sets three, set four, set five, that's just when Nadal's most effective. We don't even know what he looks like on clay court in a fifth set because I suppose it's never happened. But you're just not winning sets three and four. And so it's like you got to go up two sets to love, and he's got to get off to a quick start. And I do think he served well enough to get off that quick start. The question is, can Nadal sustain his peak for the duration of a match? Because we haven't seen that yet, but he's also gotten better from start to finish in every match he's played. And that's a really, really scary thought for Djokovic, who hasn't hit a peak yet. And it's like, at some point, he's going to have to be at his peak if he wants to compete with Nadal, because yeah, Nadal look, will again, get there. We've shared these theories, probably me more intensely than you, because I'm, I'm a bit out there on the Djokovic, sort of what he does mentally. I mean, the, the guy's ridiculous, right? He'll just tank. He'll just tank sets away just to mess with people, just to motivate himself, and then go win, and everyone acts surprised. It's it's outrageous. He does it time after time, and everyone's still so shocked when he does it. I'm like, guys, he's not trying to win. Like, he's not he's not trying to win. Like, you'll, you'll know. Like, there is a definitive moment when you know he's trying to win. And I do think that's what pissed him off when he was playing Veratini, is because I do think he was trying to win in that and lost a couple there, especially you mentioned in the breaker. He played better than Veratini that whole set. He did. Um, and it, maybe no, it wasn't his best, but he was locked in, and I think that's why he was so mad. Is because he was like, "I'm actually trying, and I am not just clearing this guy off the court yet." Um, and so that that is where the frustration I think came in that you didn't necessarily see in the same light against Musetti because he hadn't started trying yet. He was like, "Ah, we're good. Like, believe me, when I try, this kid's done." And sure enough, Musetti retires simply not out of any reason for the injury, just because he couldn't win points anymore. Which outrageous tangent we need to have on that some other time but here we are look Djokovic no he hasn't achieved I guess his top level but I think there's some he's been saving in the tank because he knows he could get to this matchup with Nadal Nadal again not going to try and read into those other matches Schwartzman taking a set off of him doesn't do too much for me we've seen Diego Schwartzman do that to Nadal so it is what it is but you mentioned it my goodness how good is Nadal at bouncing back after losing a set I mean he was lights out in that third after dropping the second to Diego. And I think you mentioned it perfectly. Djokovic needs to be able to get out to a hot start and probably up that 2-0 set lead because without it, Nadal is so good at scrapping back. And yeah, Djokovic is always going to be able to try and find his way in return games, but Nadal on the clay has so much time. Djokovic is going to have to, he's going to have to serve at the level that he has been plus a little bit against Nadal if he wants to sniff at this one. Give me your prediction. Who you got? How many sets? Hmm. Give me the doll in three. Um, I I'm considering I'm considering going four, but I don't know. I think I think there's a real chance if Djokovic wins. Oh man, 
I don't know. I could see Djokovic just outlasting him and winning in five. I don't think Nadal is as impenetrable in a deep clay court match as maybe he would have been years and years ago. I think that's where Djokovic can stretch him across, you know, a five-hour match or something like that. Um, But I think Nadal right now, if he sustains the level and just keeps it to the tennis without the crazy physicality, without the crazy sort of mental hoops that he would have to go through in a long match with Djokovic, I think he gets out of here in a tight, you know, 245. Reset match done. <laughs> I like that. Um, I say Nadal in four. I think Djokovic takes the first set, and I think he gets to a breaker in the second. And I think that's where Nadal takes makes his move, and I think Nadal takes it from there in four. Um, I just think Djokovic is gonna make or break. Like I, wa- I watched the highlights again from that Rome match, and I really think Djokovic should have yeah. won the first two sets. And, like, I just think he's taken one of the first two in this match, and I think it's got to be the first one because the thought of having to lose a first set and then play three more against Rafa and Clay just breaks your brain. And it's one thing if you have to play three more and only win two of them, but it's just another thing when you have to win three. A straight set match against Rafa and Clay is just never going to happen. And so... I think Djokovic comes out swinging. I really do think he's been serving and trying to be aggressive with that first ball in preparation for this match. But I just think Nadal heats up in the end. He's too much. You know his patterns. They're so effective. Give me Nadal real, real in four quick, sets well, one now. One last thing I'll say here. What scares me, though, oh, please. is... And the reason I say Nadal in three, just because... I mean, partially just because I want it clamped shut, done, Nadal. But what scares me here is I think if Nadal is going to win, it probably will be more convincing maybe four I don't know I'm still sticking with Nadal three the problem is if I think I think if Djokovic is truly playing well enough to take a set off of Nadal him taking off a, a taking a set off Nadal to me is much more impactful than you know maybe Nadal getting a set take off him by Schwartzman to me it doesn't mean quite as much if that makes sense so if Djokovic truly is playing at the level where he can win sets against Nadal or even a single set against Nadal in his mind he can beat it all. And so that's the scary part because he's probably right. I mean, Djokovic is just simply that good. So if he's playing at a level where he can win a set, to me, there's no reason he can't win the match. But again, I'm sticking with it. Nadal in three and brand of the gods. Let's see it happen. Yeah, no, again, we're both taking Nadal. I just think, I just have a thing. But again, give me Nadal in four, but I do think it's a four set match. Now, flip side. Zverev, Tsitsipas, they've played before in their career. You look overall for Tsitsipas, 5-2 advantage for him over Zverev. Overall, of course, you look at the majors they've played at. Never actually played at the majors. This will be their first time. They played once this year, Acapulco final. Zverev won in straight sets. Now, they've only played once on clay courts. Madrid 2019 was a three-set win for Tsitsipas over Zverev. In the quarterfinals, of course, I've said the stat before, so I'm not going to say it again. You guys know Tsitsipas' break percentage jumps by 10%. He goes from being number 40 to number 14 in the tennis abstract leaderboard when you switch from hard courts to clay measures of his break percentage, which is, again, a measurement of his returns. You look at their pathways to this semifinal for Tsitsipas, who, by the way, 58 and 19, uh, not 58 and 19, excuse me, in his last 52 weeks. You look for him overall 54 and 17, 76% win percentage in his last 52 weeks. You know, his clay court season wins Monte Carlo, finals of Barcelona, quarterfinals of Rome, wins Lyon, now here in Roland Garros. So he's on a, I believe, nine match winning streak. You look for him, obviously, uh, fourth career, I believe, semifinal. He's never advanced to a major final before. Meanwhile, for Alex Vera, if you look at his results this season, uh, it's in just the last 52 weeks, 55, uh, 45 and 14, excuse me, so 76% win percentage as well. His clay court season, a little more up and down, loses, you know, second round Monte Carlo to Gauffin, second round Munich to Ivashka, then wins Madrid, loses quarterfinals to Rafa in Rome, now reaches the semifinals here. You know, we mentioned the, the five-set match against Ota, but pretty straightforward draw for him and it's funny in his four times competing in the Grand Slam semifinals he has zero top 10 wins but you can only play the player put in front of you and he is just better than these other players that aren't top 10 in the best of five format wins for him over Ota, Sifilian, Jure, Nishikori, and Davidovich Fokina for Tsitsipas it was wins over Chardy, Pedro Martinez, John Isner, Prano 
Pablo Carreno Busta and Daniil Medvedev. Jamie, your breakdown of this match. Yeah, I mean, you, look, got? It, it, you can you can read it both ways, but let's be honest. Sitsipas has clearly had the harder road to get here. Now, yeah, it, it's been tougher, but he's also gotten through that. Uh, and so I don't think the physical part is going to be an issue. He's looked fine. He was able to get through the Medvedev match without it becoming some grueling marathon affair. So I think that was really, really key for him in this one. You know, it's interesting. You know, when we looked at the Sitsipas and Medvedev matchup, Medvedev led the head-to-head significantly. Now we go to flip this. Sitsipas leads the head-to-head against Zverev. And there's just something in the back of my mind. I know Zverev hasn't played the same caliber of player, but those wins against Nishikori and Davidovich Fokina were so good. Um, and again, we, we don't need to rehash this about how we don't really love to see Zverev succeed at this point, given some of the off-court stuff. But, God, his tennis has looked good. Um, he's just looked so good on the defense. People cannot hit through him. And when he gets the chance to step into the ball inside the baseline, I mean, the guy is, has been just unreal at being able to finish points from almost anywhere in the court. Um, and so he's dangerous. He's absolutely dangerous. I think Sitsipas has what it takes to get Zverev back into his mode of sort of uncomfortable pushing on his heels behind the baseline. Sitsipas can finish points that way. I don't think there's a chance that this is a straight set match. Um, I would be very, very surprised if this is a straight set match, regardless of who wins. Sitsipas, I think, has displayed a higher level of tennis, I would say, given the pe- person the, on the other side of the net. But man, Zverev has looked clean, even though he might not have been playing the most impressive player. Yeah, it's just, again, on paper, and again, when you see the peaks for Alex Virov, there's a lot of things he can do well. He does have the length to absorb the first serve of Stefano Tsitsipas. He does have the sort of backhand that when Tsitsipas tries to attack inside out with his forehand, Zverev will have no problem taking the open space going down the line. He also has the sort of first serve that can be a weapon still and hurt Tsitsipas even on a clay court. At the same time, how many times do we have to watch Alex Virov wilt under pressure to fall for it before he ends up wilting again? And you know what Stefano Tsitsipas no longer does is he doesn't wilt under pressure. He is ready for this moment, plays on his front foot, plays on his terms, more importantly than anything else. And, you know, again, he has been battle-tested in this tournament, and every time he's been down, he's fought his way back, whether it was, you know, second and third set to when Medvedev made his push, whether it was down that break in a third set to Kareno Busta, he managed to fight his way through, and it also still feels like we haven't seen him play his best match. Now, I would say the same for Zverev. I don't think we've seen either of them peak yet, but it does feel like the Tsitsipas peak right now is just a little bit higher because have we ever really seen Zverev peak for more than 10 minutes in a match? Tough to say at a Grand Slam. Yeah. I mean, you lean Tsitsipas. I, the thing is, if this match goes five, give me Zverev, but I think Tsitsipas wins in four. Really? I think I think if it's five, I think, I mean, obviously it depends on uh, sort of the journey of the match, but for me, if it's five, you know, I probably lean Tsitsipas because I, I think in a five-set match, fifth-set decider, I think that is where the tendency of the nerves to, to hurt Zverev and the complete shutdown of a second serve. To me, I think that has a real chance to manifest. Like, the deeper this goes, I think Tsitsipas has a bigger edge because he trusts himself and probably has a little bit more confidence in himself. Um, yeah, there's a chance that Zverev comes out on fire, but I think if Tsitsipas comes out and sets the tone early that he's taking it to Zverev, he can beat him from the ground. He can beat him from the net and really approach in it. I think Tsitsipas has the tools to do this and set the tone pretty early. Again, I'll be surprised if this is straight sets either way, but yeah, give me Tsitsipas, give me Tsitsipas in either four or five. So I just think physically, Zverev peaks in these longer matches because he doesn't get tired. And does he get tentative? Absolutely. But he's got the physicality to play those tentative matches. And I want to see if Tsitsipas can keep his relentless aggression up in a fifth set. You know what? I'm switching my pick. I'll take Zverev in five. I just think physically he's ready. I just think he has peaked now at these Grand Slams. Six in a row, he's made the fourth rounder later. I just think three out of five sets, he can do enough different things to take away your strength and still play plus one tennis. I like Again, Tsitsipas has shown week in, week out that he has what it takes. I just think Zverev actually plays his best match here. I think Tsitsipas is the one guy across the net that perhaps can get him going and be like, you know what, I am better than Tsitsipas. This is a next-gen battle. It's time for me to win this one. Like with team, at least team's still a little bit older in his peer. There is no, you know, Stefano Tsitsipas is straight up his rival. And I want to see Zverev step up in a match like this, and I think this is the one he does. Again, it's I'll hard take to fault that five. pick. I could, I could build a strong case on either side of this. Um, truthfully, I could. I, I think 
again, is my is my pick influenced by everybody saying Sitsipas is a is a favorite? Maybe um, because it's a. I know. Hundred percent. That's exactly. why I'm doing it. I gotta swerve. I just the there is so much. Yep. It's gonna be Sitsipas. It's gonna you. be Sitsipas. It's gonna be Sitsipas. And that's and why I, I think I it's did zero. Contemplate that, but I think when it comes down to it, I trust Sitsipas a little bit more. I, I think he's been battle tested. I think for me, you know, this this comes a lot clearer because of his fourth round and quarterfinal wins. I mean, taking out both Karina Busta and Medvedev in straight sets is really impressive. Um, those are both really, really good players who know how to compete on big stages. And he took them out without dropping a set. Like, that to me is impressive. What? He dropped one set against Isner's, like 7-5. Like, okay. You, like, you, you can't fault a guy for that. And by the end of it, he had shown why he was so much better and just completely closed him out 6-1. And so, to me, Sitsipas is in a really good spot mentally. Yeah, Zverev is too, but Sitsipas knows that he's shown a higher level of tennis and beaten a better player so far. I, I, I just... I think he's a little bit stronger. Yes, 100% of world where Zverev wins this match. But I, I think Tsitsipas is the better one. And I think he deserves to get to the final in this one. No, we're allowed to disagree. And so, again, I, I think more than anything else, you get Djokovic, Nadal, Zverev, Tsitsipas, Battle of the Generations. This is what you want in the final weekend of the year's second Grand Slam. And certainly, again, we will be back tomorrow to recap all the men's semifinal action, preview the women's singles final. We know, of course, there's grass court action going on, challenger action going on. I'm going to talk challenger tennis on tomorrow's Great Shot podcast with David Gertler. So be on the lookout for that and of course as always if you have missed any of the action you can catch up on all of it by tuning into our website crackrackets.com of course if you need the more immediate updates twitter instagram facebook youtube we are at cracked rackets you want to message me directly i am at great shot pod a shout out as always to our super producers max Fligner and daniel westoff for the f- of an editing job they do day in day out a shout out as well to our friends at tennis point remember it's tennis-point.com the promo code is cr15 with that in mind jamie any final thoughts on tomorrow's men's action any grass tennis thoughts anything you've missed out on saying that you'd like to get off your chest? i'm not going to realize how much i miss clay court tennis until i have to start watching grass tennis luckily it's a short season luckily it's a short season <laughs> but my goodness i forget it every time and the pace and just how points are constructed, it's uh, it's hard to get used to, and you don't have much time to get used to it. So, again, it, it's short and sweet, and so, uh, you know, you've got the allure of Wimbledon, phenomenal, great, good for you, but I'm going to miss me some good clay court grinding. That, my friend, is the correct take, and that's a perfect place to end it. So with that in mind, for my wonderful co-host James Fulsta, McDonald, our super producers, Fligner and Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, and all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Jamie, what do we tell the people? And we will see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>